0: I'd like to welcome you all to the 4th Annual Ninian Smart Memorial Lecture here at the University of California, Santa Barbara, as well as at Lancaster University in Great Britain. The Annual Ninian Smart Memorial Lecture is possible through the generous support of Mrs. Labuschka Smart and the children of Ninian Smart, Florence Michelson, Philip E. Hammond, and Prentice Hall Publishers. This lecture is the fourth in a series that is held each year to honor the memory of Ninian Smart, founding professor of religious studies at Lancaster University, and first J.F. Rowney, professor in comparative religions at the University of California, Santa Barbara, who died on the 29th of January, 2001. The annual lectures are delivered alternately in Lancaster and Santa Barbara. I'm very pleased to introduce our speaker today for a number of reasons. I myself work in the same field as Wendy Donegar Flaherty, and at the conclusion of my own undergraduate study abroad year in India in 1972, Uh, I returned to the United States and soon after discovered a book that just changed my life and that was asceticism and eroticism in the mythology of Shiva, which was for myself and I believe an entire generation of um, scholars or or budding scholars or would-be scholars in South Asian religions, not just a breath of fresh air but just a a new jet stream of fresh air uh, on the subject of Hindu thought, mythology, and uh, imagery, and that was followed, of course, by a number of other books, almost immediately by the origins of evil in Hindu mythology. Professor Wendy Doniger O'Flaherty came to the University of Chicago in 1978 and uh, has taught there ever since. She is now, uh, and has been for some years, the Mircea Eliade Professor of the History of Religions at the University of Chicago she 's the author of more than thirty books on myth, uh, including the two that I just mentioned, as well as many others that span the gamut of mythology from uh, Hinduism to ancient Greece to Woody Allen movies uh, to just about anything you care to uh, pick up on late night television uh, her one thousand nine hundred and eighty four book Dreams Illusions and Other Dreams, Illusion, and Other Reality other realities was um, reviewed in the Village Voice and uh, I just want to read a sentence from that review because it's one that's stayed with me for years in which the reviewer says that uh, Doniger wants to make your mental flesh creep and she succeeds Uh, she's been making our mental flesh creep and perhaps uh, other parts of our flesh creep for decades now and has given us such rich images and metaphors as the last visible dog, the receding frame, the cave of echoes. And today she's going to bring us another cave, Uh, her lecture for today is entitled Narrative Conventions and Myth, The Cave of the Magic Ring. So welcome Wendy.
1: Thank you, David. Um, I'm so happy to be here and to be able to give this lecture today partly for the sake of Ninian Smart who has been an old, was an old friend of mine for many years starting in the days when he and I were both teaching in England He at Lancaster and I at SOAS at the University of London and right to the end of his life when I visited him here in Santa Barbara, so I'm honored to be able to speak in that great lineage. And it's wonderful to be introduced by David White, who was one of my first students at the University of Chicago, and one of my most brilliant students, and who has sent me his students and a kind of grandchild, parampara. So um, there are many lineages here that I'm happy to be in, and even some recent students of mine who are also here at Santa Barbara now, so I feel connected. The endurance of the theme of the magic ring of memory and forgetfulness demonstrates the persistent use of narratives to organize the chaos of human experience. The theme of the ring is a convention The people in the stories often use it to persuade other people of the truth of their assertions, and while some audiences accept the convention and allow themselves to be persuaded, other audiences reject the convention and challenge the assertions that the ring is meant to prove. We ourselves often tell one another stories when we wish to persuade. This morning I'll tell a number of such stories and I'll end with a real-life story in which the narrative, rather than the actual facts, carried the meaning. I'll talk about three different sorts of rings which often melt into a single ring. The first type is not magic at all, it is the ring of identity. In the tale of Tamar and Judah in Genesis 38, perhaps the 8th century before the Common Era, and in Shakespeare's All's Well That Ends Well, the lost and found ring of sexual identity validates a woman's denied claim that a certain man has slept with her. The second type of ring is fantastic, if not magical, the ring lost in an ocean and found in a fish. This sort of ring may have a positive or a negative power. Sometimes its owner tries to lose it, sometimes to find it, but it returns as inevitably as the repressed in Freud's formulation. And the third type of ring is magic. It sometimes makes people forget, sometimes remember, who they are or who they love. All three are combined in the ancient Indian tale of Shakuntala. Let me begin with a word or two about narratives, particularly mythological narratives. Originality is not an essential ingredient of a good myth. The voice of myth is predictable, one that the storyteller knows and the audience expects. This frozen style may account for the fact fact that as Claude Lévi-Strauss remarked, while poetry is what is lost in translation, myth is what survives the worst translation. I always post this statement above my computer when I'm translating myths to give me confidence. In substance too, myths remind us of what they have told us before and what we already know, just as the magic rings in so many stories remind forgetful men and women of what they already know. The elements of myth build a potentially infinite number of stories by rearranging a rather limited number of known mythic themes. Each culture chooses the scraps that it wants to keep. Some have proved more recyclable than others. The scraps that are kept are known to audiences as well as to storytellers. For the audience has an expectation of what the story should say, and the storyteller imitates that paradigm, fulfills that expectation. The audience takes pleasure in predicting what will happen, and satisfaction in seeing it happen, rather than in being surprised or shocked. This is the very opposite of the psychology of murder mysteries. In this way, the retelling of the myths takes on the function of communion rather than communication, as um, Rao pointed out years ago. People listen to stories not merely to learn something new to be communication, but to relive together the stories that they already know, stories about themselves, which is communion. Where communication is effective, communion is evocative. Where communication seeks to influence the future, communion draws upon the past. What literary critics call the recognition narrative, for instance, the ultimate revelation of the identity of someone who has been in disguise for much of the story, served like the theme of the Pieta or the Madonna and Child for medieval European sculptors, as a classical shared theme that challenged the artist to use it as a foil for individual originality for tellers of myths, can in fact be highly original, as long as they also take pains to touch all the bases that their audiences expect. The recognition seen in narratives is a cliché, which has led literary critics and cultural snobs, too often intersecting groups, commonly to regard such stories with contempt and suspicion. But the audience enjoys the way that as the story unfolds, we see through the disguise of the now superficial details, a different character, a different country, to realize that it is in fact our old friend, the finally revealed heroine or the forgetful husband. When the victim in a masquerade narrative finally recognizes the masquerader, oh, it's my wife, The reader or listener of the story recognizes the plot. Oh, it's a recognition story. And it is precisely this known quality of the cliche plot, plus its intricate appeal, cliches endure because they represent truths, that makes it ultimately fulfilling. The moment when the two apparently different characters are revealed to be two aspects of one person brings with it the same satisfaction as the moment when the last piece of the jigsaw puzzle or the last line connecting the dots slips in to reveal the total image, or when in a piece of classical music the expected final sequence of chords comes into resolution. Etc. Um, it can go on for quite a while. This accounts for the extraordinary popularity of recognition scenes in all types of literature, a popularity that remains in tension with the contempt of the critics. In style and form, myths are cliches. More precisely, they are the narrative embodiment, sometimes a larger-than-life embodiment, of cliches of language or metaphors that occur in everyday speech. But a myth is a story that reveals the profundity of a cliché. The mythological, the mythological texts may be fantastic, yet they often present in a grotesquely exaggerated and hence newly attention-getting form, situations that are quite common in real life. Moreover, communion may lead on to new communications, it may lead us to the assimilation of new stories from our own culture or from others just as the prince in the old story follows the deer until he finds himself in what Shakespeare called another part of the forest, and Dante called una selva oscura. So the storyteller lures the reader or listener from one story to another. From the familiar territory of the recognized general plot, oh, I know this story, it's the one about the prince chasing the deer, to the terror incognita of the new particular version with its unique details. The deer is chasing the prince, or the prince becomes the deer, or turns out to be the deer in disguise. Certain basic lines of the plot remain intact over many centuries, even when those lines become increasingly problematic for moral or aesthetic or political reasons. The great puzzle is why the story is not simply discarded. And here I'm thinking um, newly about what part of the tradition in India, for instance, the Sanskrit Brahminical tradition is preserved by the Brahmins while outside that tradition, in the vernaculars, other stories are being told that we don't hear about until vernaculars get to be recorded. This is something that David White is working on now. And what stories are actually still taken from the Brahminical tradition into the vernacular tradition unchanged and parroted until at some point, and what is that point? That's what I'm trying to figure out. At some point, they do begin to change. What is the moment when you can really change the story and who changes the story? So this is the unfinished part of this meditation. This is a book in progress. Everything I do is a book in progress. This is a book in progress. So what is it about some stories that inspires whole narrative traditions to create epicycle upon epicycle, as astronomers did for the Ptolemaic Earth-centered system for so many centuries, instead of making the Copernican leap and simply telling a different sun-centered story. And of course that leap does occur, and the question is where? There are literally hundreds of versions of the, maybe thousands of the great Sanskrit epic the Ramayana with seemingly infinite uh, variations. Many of them struggle to find ways to explain or justify the scene in which Prince Rama humiliates his wife Sita and kicks her out. Why don't they all just leave out that scene? Why do they not all write a scene in which Sita humiliates Rama and kicks him out? And of course, there are now versions in which Sita, that's the question, where does that change come? This is the power of myth. Certain stories are frozen up to a certain point that is instinctively adjudicated by the tradition. That's the point. Forcing the tellers to manipulate other aspects of the plot, like a river flowing around a great stone. The same conservative force operates in the writing of history, too. That narrative art so often compared with myth, Even Collingwood, the great defender of the subjective element in historiography, admitted that you can't say that Caesar killed Brutus. There are limits. Myth and history are alike in having to play by the rules of the game, though it's a different game for each. History is constrained by certain facts, myths, as Eliade pointed out, by certain patterns. In contrast with a novel, which can indeed imagine Caesar killing Brutus, or Sita kicking Rama out, and also certain folk traditions which break away in India from the Ramayana, and and could say that Sita kicked Rama out. I haven't found one yet, but in India there's always something you don't know about. The constraints of the traditional narrative form must somehow accommodate the constantly changing needs of the narrative community, and there seems to be a limit to the number of basic plots that can be used. Stith Thompson, the Linnaeus of folklore, captured all the plots in his wide survey of folktale, this is folktale motifs, this is the uh, cross between the periodic tables and the Dewey decimal system, sort of every folktale you could ever think of, arranged scientifically. Storytellers often find themselves caught between a rock and a hard place, between inherited traditional story that they are holding on to like a monkey with a banana in his fist banana there unwilling to let go, and a new cage of ethics that traps the monkey's banana grasping paw within it. At such a moment, the always at hand narrative theme of the magic ring may be invoked as a key to unlock that cage. It's really a cage rather than a cave I'm talking about today. One convention pushing the storyteller out of the fix that another convention pushed her into in the first place. When, to change the metaphor, a storyteller has painted herself into a corner trapped between one moral standard and another that follows it but does not quite supplant it which is what happens in India, where you have these new ideas which are kept on top of old ideas which don't go away. She reaches for a life-saving narrative and one is always readily available to do the job like a tube of crazy glue in a kitchen drawer. In this case, usually a recognition plot or a story about a magic ring. If the author cannot change what happened, the plot, and the question is when can and can she not do that, she may at least be able to change the balance of power in the knowledge of the plot, who knew what and when, as we often ask of politicians. The ring of forgetfulness is often precisely the tool to jimmy open the moral line in this way. It produces and obscures knowledge at will, thus shifting the moral responsibility. So that's the background about narrative in general and what I'm looking for in the use of this magic ring in narratives. Now let us consider some narratives about rings beginning with type one, the ring of identity. Signet rings are the personal emblem of the owner. The ring as a sign of identity may remind the wearer of the giver because it actually has something of him or her in it. It is truly a memento. A ring is a symbol of the personality, and to bestow a ring implies the surrender of one's being. To bestow one's ring is to bestow a power, the authority to speak in one's name. In the Hebrew Bible, as Robert Alter pointed out, a signet ring as the legal surrogate of the bearer would have been a kind of ancient Near Eastern equivalent of all a person's major credit cards. The signet ring is an extension of the hand with its handwriting and later fingerprints. To lose your ring, therefore, is in a sense to lose your identity and to find it again is to rediscover who you are. This brings us to the second type of ring. The many stories in which a magic ring is found in the belly of a fish are the mythical expression of a perfectly banal happening. Fishermen fish things up out of the deep. Indeed, there are a number of anecdotes in the Ripley's Believe It or Not genre testifying to the fact that fish really do swallow rings, though probably not the ring that you may have lost in the ocean. We'll consider one real-life contemporary variant of the story at the very end of the talk. In this, all of the ring stories are counterintuitive, promising a happy ending that could seldom have been the case in real life. But that way madness lies. The point of the story and the reason for its extraordinary popularity must be found elsewhere than in the actual habits of gold rings and fish. In one branch of this story, Type A of Type two, as Stith Thompson might have put it, the ring is something that the owner would wish to destroy if possible, something that is thrown away but returns against the owner's wish. The defining ring of this type in European mythology is the ring of Polycrates, ruler of Samos, whose story the Greek historian Herodotus told sometime between 485 and 420 BCE. Polycrates had extraordinary good fortune, but was advised to force, this is David Green's translation, Polycrates had extraordinary good fortune, but was advised to forestall the jealousy of the gods by taking what he valued most and which, when lost, would cost him the most agony of soul, and casting it away where it would never come to the world of men again. Polycrates had a signet ring that he wore continually. It was bound in gold, its stone was an emerald, and it had been made by a great craftsman. Polycrates ordered a boat, went in it himself, and when he was far from his island, threw his ring into the sea. Five or six days afterwards, a fisherman caught a fish so large and beautiful that he thought he should give it to the king. When the royal servants cut up the fish, they found in its belly Polycrates' signet ring. Polycrates realized that it was impossible for one man to deliver his fellow man from what is fated to happen to him. He knew he would not end well. And it's true, he didn't. Polycrates in this story is ambivalent. He's very fond of his ring, so he both does and does not want to get it back, though his fear of the ring is the dominant emotion. Tolkien's ring is of this type too, and that's all I'm going to say about Tolkien in this lecture, or this book. In the other branch of this genre, type B of type two, The polar opposite of the story of Polycrates, the ring is lost against the owner's will and is miraculously regained to the owner's relief and delight. King Solomon's ring was said to have been stolen and thrown into the sea, but later found in the stomach of a fish that was served at his table, a particularly appropriate fate for a ring that enabled the wearer to understand the language of animals, presumably including fish. This story, and the many others like it, generally regard as a benevolent miracle the return of the ring from the ocean, a place from which everything eventually returns, but you cannot expect any particular thing to return. This sort of ring is the key to the great lost and found of the narrative world. In both branches of the story, the Solomon type and the Polycrates type, the ring in the belly of the fish reminds us that we cannot escape our fate, whether we fear it or desire it. Joseph Campbell once wrote, he didn't, not everything Joseph Campbell wrote was wrong. Joseph Campbell once wrote, not everyone has a destiny, only the hero who has plunged to touch it and has come up again with a ring. <coughs> Sorry. The entirely straightforward forward fact that you lose your identification and hence your persona, your personal identity if you lose your ring or nowadays your credit cards, what we call identity theft, leads to the quasi-magical idea of losing your memory of who you are when you lose your ring, or your memory of your connection with a lover when you lose the ring that was a gift from that lover and always reminded you of the giver. And when you find the ring, you remember again. This is the third type of ring, the magic ring of memory and forgetfulness. The ring in the fish story, type 2B, combines with types one and three, the rings of identity and forgetfulness in the ancient Indian story of Shakuntala. A clear historical development is evident in the textual history of the story of Shakuntala, best known from a Sanskrit play by the poet Kalidasa in the fourth century of the common era, but based upon a story in the Mahabharata, the great Sanskrit epic composed between about 300 BCE and 300 CE. In the earlier version, the Mahabharata version, King Dushyanta comes to a hermitage where he meets a beautiful young woman named Shakuntala. He persuades her to marry him by the Gandharva rite of private mutual desire, witnessed only by the magical Gandharvas. But she makes him promise that if she bears him a son, the boy will become king. Then he leaves, promising to send for her. So gives birth to a boy, and when he is six years old, she brings him to court, saying to Dushanta, This is your son. Remember the promise you made long ago when we lay together. When the king hears her words, he remembers perfectly well, but he says... I do not remember. Whose woman are you? I don't remember ever having anything to do with you. Women are liars. Who will trust what you say? Your son is too big and too strong to have been born as recently as you claim. Your own birth is low and you look to me like a whore, a chully. All that you are saying makes no sense to me. I do not recognize you. She argues with him at some length, but he insists that he does not know her and she leaves. At that moment, a disembodied voice from the sky says, support your son and do not reject Shakuntala. Then Dushanta says to his courtiers, I knew all of this perfectly well, knew that he was my own son. But if I'd accepted him as my own son just from her words, there would have been doubt among the people. Then he accepts his son and forgives Shakuntala for the harsh words she had spoken to him in anger. Thank you very much, Dushanta. Tishyanta does not want to remember either Shakuntala or his awkward promise about the succession. No explanation is given for his decision to lie about her other than his statement that he rejected her because of his fear of public disapproval, an argument that rings equally hollow when Rama uses it to reject Sita in the Ramayana. The poet Kalidasa writing in the fourth century CE was under the patronage of the Gupta dynasty who traced their lineage back to the child of Shakuntala and Dushyanta, a child named Bharata from whose name is derived the word used to designate India in most Indian languages to this day. Kalidasa had his work cut out for him to transform Bharata's father Dushyanta, from a lying cad to a sympathetic lover and he fell back upon the tried and true devices of the fishy ring and the ring of forgetfulness. In his version of the story, Dushyanta offers Shakuntala his signet ring with his name engraved on it. He places his ring on her finger as he leaves to return to court, telling her to count off one day for each letter of his name and at the end he will send for her. An angry sage curses her to be forgotten by the man she loves until he sees some ornament as a token of recognition. But Shakuntala loses the ring and the king does not recognize her when she appears at court pregnant. She runs away and he does nothing until one day a fisherman brings him a fish in which he finds his ring and then he remembers her. He finds her and his son and they are happily reunited. Thus the fish story gets Kalidasa out of what subsequent Indian scholars recognized as a true moral dilemma. The curse is a very convenient and rather suspicious excuse as the cynical ladies in the court point out in Kalidasa's play when they say, such a passion should not need a token of remembrance or recognition and the king replies to this, so let me blame the ring. That's about as close to an admission of guilt as that sort of ruler, indeed that sort of man, will ever get. Dushanta's loss of memory is notorious in later Sanskrit literature when a woman in a later story in the Katasarat Sagra, is seduced by a man disguised as a king and the real king later denies having had her which in this case is true she says to him did you marry me by the Gandharva ritual and forget me as Dushanta forgot Shakuntala long ago but the king replies in this case honestly truly I never married you at all I just came here now Yet India and the rest of the world continued to generate stories in which rings rather than kings took the burden of guilt for seducing and abandoning women. Often the ring in the fish's moor is replaced by a child who's lost in the ocean and found again. And a child's fate is at the heart of many of the stories of lost rings, as we've already seen in the story of Shakuntala. Our text thus express two different views of the resurgence of the past as it is symbolized by the ring retrieved by the fish, that it is harmful, something to be feared, the ring of Polycrates, and that it is beneficial, something to be desired, Shakuntala's ring. But in both cases, the ring that is symbolic of clouded memory is inevitably found because it is an integral part of the person who loses it. Freud explored one variant of this myth of the strangle grip of the past in his theory of the return of the repressed, a concept that illuminates several variants of the myths of the ring and the fish. He spelt it out in Moses and Monotheism, where the theme of the child once again looms large. He wrote, When a child... He didn't write this. It's the English translation of what he wrote. German, so... What a child has strongly experienced and not understood by the time he has reached the age of two he may never again remember except in dreams. Only through psychoanalytic treatment will he become aware of those events. At any time in later years, however, they may break into his life with obsessional impulsiveness, direct his actions, force him to like or dislike people, and often decide the choice of his love object by a preference that so often cannot be rationally defended. The second half of that is a very good statement, I think. The formation of symptoms, Freud continued at a later time, indicates the return of the repressed, though it appears in a distorted form in those symptoms, and indeed the ring when we do get it back out of the water is not the same. It has undergone like the submerged body of the drowned king imagined in the tempest, a sea change into something rich and strange, or as my late colleague A.K. Ramanujan put it in writing about the story of Shakuntala, nothing is lost, only transformed." The positive and negative aspects of this repression and the corresponding positive and negative aspects of its return are mythologized in the two forms of the tale of the ring retrieved by a fish. Like Polycrates, like Deshanta, we repress unconscious thoughts and feelings that we find too painful, but this suppression requires fairly heavy psychic maintenance and the repressed thought may break out at a moment of psychic trauma. Freud first adumbrated this theory in 1900 at the end of a decade in which a quartet of Victorian novels explored four different but closely related concepts. Whereas in Freud the repressed memory is hidden in the oceanic depths of the unconscious mind, in Arthur Conan Doyle's A Study in Scarlet, 1887, the repressed self is shipped off to the colonies whence it comes back to England. In Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, 1887, it is masked and then released by psychoactive drugs. In Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray, 1890, it is captured in a portrait. And in Bram Stoker's Dracula, 1897, it falls into the deep sleep of the undead by day. And always, sometimes after many years, the dark secret breaks out of the colony, or the drug, or the portrait, or the sleep by night, breaks out literally with a vengeance. But the more positive counterpoint to Polycrates' ring, namely the ring of Solomon or Shakuntala, brings with it the return of the desired mate and or the child that we had feared we had lost forever. Men like Dushyanta, who blame rings for their loss of the memory of women they have seduced, are found in stories told in many different cultures, not universally, but widespread. They appear in particular in several related medieval cycles from Welsh, Celtic, French, German, and early English literature, including one version of the story of Lancelot with Guinevere, Tristan with Isolde, and Siegfried with Brunhilde, although here the ring plays many other roles as well. We may hazard a kind of historical development here too as we trace certain basic plots. In the earliest version of many of these stories, the man simply abandons the woman without any justification, brazening it out, denying and rejecting the woman he has seduced or raped and often impregnated. In the revised version, he lies to society. Social pressure makes him pretend to forget. We saw this in the um, Mahabharata version of, of Dushyanta. I knew but I didn't want the people to hear this. But still later revisionist tellings get the man off the hook by attributing his behavior to a convenient bout of amnesia caused by, of course, a smoking ring. Now the man often actually thinks that he forgets. Here he is lying not to society but to himself. Someone has to take the rap and the ring is the fall guy. In cultures that honor the narrative convention of the ring, the ring offers a socially viable reason for doing what you secretly want to do. Rings that come often packaged in fishes are fishy excuses. As the story develops, the hero is caught between changing ethics, between old-fashioned, patriarchal, polygyny... And a new romantic sympathy for the woman who is supplanted, and the narrator too is caught in the middle. Kalidasa wants to rehabilitate Dushyanta for his patrons in the Gupta dynasty. Within the story, the ring provides the faithless man with an alibi for his behavior. Outside the story, the ring provides the storyteller with an alibi, a way of whitewashing the character of a hero whose behavior, once acceptable to the audiences of an early age, is no longer acceptable to later audiences with different moral standards. This development appears to indicate a growing concern for the feelings of women, a need to apologize for a man who breaks his promise, but it may also reflect the increasing subjugation of women and concern for their chastity, which widens the gulf, the asymmetry between the acceptable infidelity of a man and the unacceptable infidelity of a woman. The ring allows him, but never her, to be unfaithful. In the end, she always forgives him, and he forgives her for being mad, too. This is not necessarily a sign of moral progress, it is just change. One form of oppression is exchanged for another. To abandon a woman without lying poses one set of problems while to lie about it poses another. We may argue about which is worse, blatant evil or papered over evil. Had DeJunta lived to our time, he might have attributed his memory lapse not to a ring but to a drug and cited an article in Nature Genetics, August 2000. Scientists at the Yerkes Regional Primate Research Center in Atlanta concluded from their experiments that the hormone oxytocin seemed to enable male mice to remember female mice, quote, with whom they have had contact, end quote, as they so delicately put it. In a New Yorker article entitled Department of Mating, Science Explains Why Men Are Like That, James Collins cited that article and suggested its applications to human life. A man and a woman sleep together and then, quote, the call never comes. It's as if he'd completely forgotten about her. Well, maybe he really has completely forgotten about her and maybe it's not his fault. Maybe he simply has a neurological disorder, end quote. And so Collins remarks, it is possible then that some male humans may be deficient in oxytocin and simply don't remember the encounters they have had with females the night before. This could be the reason they never call. Maybe it will make people think twice before engaging in a lot of negativity about caddishness and big creeps, end quote. Thus a quasi-scientific argument can be made in defense of men who forget women they have loved and left Oxytocin may have been the secret ingredient in all those rings of forgetfulness. Let me turn now to another widespread variant of type 1, the ring of identity that functions like type 3, the ring of forgetting. There's no fish in this one. Type 2 gets left out. This is a story about a husband who challenges his wife to get his ring, though he will never take it off, and a child fathered by him, though he refuses to sleep with her. She succeeds by tricking him into bed when she masquerades as another woman and insisting on having his ring before she will submit to him. When she presents him with the ring, he feels forced to acknowledge his son. This myth, best known to most people in the West from Shakespeare's All's Well That Ends Well, was first recorded, as far as I can trace it, in a 10th century Sanskrit text, The Ocean of Story, which developed in tandem with the Arabian Nights. It reaches Shakespeare via Boccaccio, who learned it through the widespread Islamic versions, I think and it has a very long shelf life indeed, particularly widespread throughout the Middle East. It is known to folklorists as the clever wench or the clever wife. Stith Thompson gives it the evocative title of AT891D, subtitled The Rejected Wife as Lover. The story also embodies a par- always embodies a paradox about a child and often poses a riddle about a ring. In real life, the usual legal process is for a woman to get a ring and then get a baby. The usual physical process is first sex, then baby. To have the baby but not the ring is of course the defining situation of every unwed mother, the fate worse than death that haunted all those Doris Dave films. Get the ring. The narrative paradox of the clever wife reverses this process requiring the woman to have a baby in order to get both the ring and the sex, but here of course the sex must also come first, it merely appears to come second, that's the trick, the bed trick. In the stories of forgetful husbands, the ring eventually cures the husband's forgetfulness, but it also justifies the forgetfulness in the first place. The ring of the husband of the clever wife, too, functions as a fetter that ultimately brings him back to his wife, though not in the same way, and it does not justify him. The word clever in the woman's title seems to carry a negative, misogynist value, as the British upper classes used to apply it to a man, usually a man of a lower class or Jewish, who was too glib and not to be trusted, an aravist, not a true gentleman, too clever by half. In Hindi folklore, tales of clever wives are usually about women who manage to commit adultery without getting caught. These attitudes reflect what James Scott calls the weapons of the weak, viewed from the side of the ruling classes or the dominant paradigm, subversion, resistance. But there's more to it than that. Two different virtues are at stake here. On the one hand, the subversive virtue of actively resisting, fighting for what you want, honestly or dishonestly. And on the other hand, the noble passive virtue of being innocent of sin. The clever wife, though spurned for her wit at the start, is praised for it at the end of the story. Defending her marital fidelity with a subversive intelligence, she proves that she has innocence as well. We might define the skeletal plot of the tale of the clever wife as the story of a wife who manages to get pregnant by a husband who A., refuses to consummate his marriage, B denies that her child is his, and C is forced by the recognition of a ring to acknowledge the truth regarding both A and B. The story of Tamar and Judah in the Hebrew Bible is such a tale, for like Shakuntala, Tamar becomes pregnant as a result of an illicit sexual encounter, and later when accused of adultery identifies the father by his ring. But Tamar departs from the pattern on two related points. The man she sleeps with is not her husband, it's her father-in-law for all sorts of complicated reasons, and he does not therefore explicitly challenge her to become pregnant, though the story, read retroactively in the light of the history of the Jews, demands that she must become pregnant. The central incident could be summarized thus. Tamar married two of Judah's sons, but they died. Judah then promised her that she could marry his third son, Shelah, when he grew up, but Shelah grew up and Tamar was not married to him. A long time afterward, Judah's wife died. Then Tamar took off her widow's garments, covered her face with a veil, and sat by the road where Judah saw her and took her for a harlot because she had covered her face. He gave her his seal, cord and staff as temporary pledges to be redeemed. He lay with her and she conceived by him. Then she got up, went away, took off her veil and put on her widow's garments and he could not find her to redeem his pledges. About three months later Judah was told Tamar your daughter-in-law has played the harlot and what is more she is with child by harlotry and Judah said take her out and let her be burned. As she was being taken out, she sent word which is actually an unusual punishment in ancient India and some have suggested, in ancient Judaism, and some have suggested an Indian connection there, the burning of the adulterous woman. As she was being taken out, she sent word to her father-in-law saying, by the man, to whom this seal and cord and staff belong. By him am I with child. Judah recognized and said, she is more in the right than I, for I did not give her to my son Shelah. Since Judah is not Tamar's husband, his feigned forgetfulness comes before the seduction when he forgets to give his son Shelah to to Tamar. Afterwards, he honestly cannot remember her since her veil has done the work of the mystifying ring in contrast with the identifying ring essential to the plot. All in all, Tamar qualifies with the other clever wives, but the Hebrew Bible takes the story in different directions, extending our understanding of the meaning of the ring and broadening our range of options for its implications. The biblical text regards the testimony of Judah's ring in Tamar's hands as a definitive proof proof. But that testimony is challenged when the story is retold in the Testament of Judah, probably 2nd century BCE, since hence some 6 centuries after the Biblical version. That version of the story is narrated by Judah himself. He says, At the very end of the story, I'm skipping all the rest of the story, which is more or less the same. At the end, he says, I went in unto her and she conceived, and not knowing what she had done, I wanted to kill her. But she privately, privately sent the pledges and put me to shame. And when I called her, I heard also the secret words that I spoke in my drunkenness while sleeping with her. And I could not kill her, for it was from the Lord. But I said... Perhaps she did it deceitfully, having received the pledge from another woman, and I thought that nobody knew that I had gone in unto her. The confrontation in the Bible is probably public, although Tamar may have sent him the signs privately. The Testament of Judah makes it explicitly a private reckoning between a man and a woman. Judah is so drunk that he does not recognize Tamar. He even blurts out secrets that she later throws back in his face, proving to him that he was the one she slept with. But later on, he recognizes her privately as the woman he had slept with, though he denies it publicly because he thinks no one else knows. He suggests that she might have gotten the pledges and presumably the private words of pillow talk from another, treacherous, colluding woman. This perfectly logical argument, though in this case a lie, seems not to have occurred to Judah in other texts, including the Hebrew Bible. Even here in the Testament of Judah, after figuring out effective ways to deny her claim, she got the word, she got the ring from some other woman, in the end, Judah confesses the truth of his own accord. Similarly, a Buddhist telling of the story of Shakuntala, without mentioning her name, one of the Jatakas, introduces the ring into the Mahabharata story as Kalidasa does. So we have the Mahabharata story without a ring, then we have Kalidasa with the ring, we have a Buddhist tale which also puts a ring into the story. But the Buddhist tale also introduces a kind of down-to-earth reasoning as Kalidasa does not. This is the Buddhist version, summary. King Brahmadatta of Banaras was wandering in his pleasure groves when he saw a woman and fell in love with her. He seduced her and she conceived a child who was the future Buddha, the Bodhisatta. He gave her the signet ring from his finger and dismissed her with these words, If it is a girl, spend this ring on her nurture, but if it is a boy, bring ring and child to me. She gave birth to a boy and the children teased him, calling him no father. He asked his mother about his father and she told him. At his request, she took him to the palace and said, this is your son, sire. The king knew well enough that this was the truth, but shame before all his court made him reply, he is no son of mine. But here is your signet ring, sire. You will recognize that. Nor is that my signet ring. Which, of course, anyone could have said it at any time. He says it, this Buddhist text. Ah, that's not my ring. Then said the woman, Sire, I have now no witness to prove my words except to appeal to truth. Wherefore, if you be the father of my child, I pray that he may stay in midair, but if not, may he fall to earth and be killed. So saying, she seized the Bodhisatta by the foot and threw him up in the air. The child suspended in the air told the king he was his son. The king stretched out his hands and cried, Come to me, my boy, none, none but me shall rear and nurture you. A thousand hands were stretched out to receive the Bodhisatta, but it was into the arms of the king and of no other that he descended, seating himself in the king's lap. The king made him viceroy and made his mother queen consort. At the death of the king, his father, he came to the throne by the title of king Katavahana, and after ruling his realm righteously, passed away to fare according to his deserts. This Buddhist text invokes the down-to-earth fact that jewelry doesn't actually prove anything at all unless other people acknowledge it. The story also recognizes the hard-headed value of a precious ring, a very early instance of the argument that diamonds are a girl's best friend. It also introduces a gender bias. If the child is a boy, it's all well and good to use the ring to secure his patrimony, but if it's a girl, you might as well use it for her dowry. Thus the ring serves both as a proof of identity and a kind of child support. These rational considerations lead back into irrational religion, an act of truth reminiscent of the voice from the sky in the Mahabharata tale of Shakuntala, a miracle, a suspension of the law of gravity, which proves the identity of the child and epitomizes, like the judgment of Solomon in First Kings, the liminality of the child torn between two parents. But where Solomon's proposed solution to split the child, which would kill it, smoked out the true mother in protest, and the voice from the sky in the first text spoke of the mother herself being split in half. I didn't read you that part, but it does. The father here quite blithely accepts the possibility that his son may crash and die. The mother has faith that since the child really is the king's, he will be safe. This text spells out as the Mahabharata does not the king's total disregard for the child as well as the mother until the proof. So welcome is the alibi of the ring that it is often accepted as a valid excuse even when all the evidence flies in the face of down-to-earth reasoning. But sometimes down-to-earth reasoning intrudes into the plot to override the convention and the proof of the ring is pushed aside to make way for other, more logical proofs of identity. We've seen this happen in the Testament of Judah and in the Buddhist variant of the Shakuntala story. That the logical arguments were always available to storytellers and audiences in most of the cultures that have preserved these stories is easily demonstrated by a number of stories in which down-to-earth reasoning does, in fact, play a role, even if it is ultimately shouted down by the romantic concerns of the text. Down to earth reasoning says in one story, look for the ring where you lost it. It says, lots of people have rings like that, or you stole that ring, or it's not my ring. In other words, the ring lies. Initial skepticism about jewelry, however, is often overcome by the power of the convention. In one version of the tale of Tristan and Isolde, when Tristan objects that Isolde did not recognize him until she saw the telltale ring of green jasper that he sent her, she replies, We are surrounded by treachery, neither the mention of your past life nor the sound of your voice. Not even this very ring proved anything to me, for all these might have been the evil tricks of a sorcerer. Nevertheless, I yield myself at the sight of this ring. Did I not not swear, as soon as I should see it again, at the risk of my life to always do what you bade me, be it wisdom or folly, end quote. In other words, she really did not trust the ring but merely kept her promise to act as if she trusted it. In much the same mood, Dushanta said, so let me blame the ring. And Kristan, in this text complains bitterly to Isolde, what mattered this ring? Do you not feel how far sweeter it would have been to have been recognized at the very mention of our former love? How long can I go on here? Uh, Can I go five minutes more? There's some great stories I wanna skip. One common sense argument that challenges the proof of the ring is the argument from coincidence. Maybe two people have the same ring, or the same name, or the same face. Coincidence may be invoked to explain away the striking resemblance between apparently different, but actually the same, pieces of jewelry. Thus in the Sanskrit play Ratnavali, The Lady of the Jeweled Necklace, composed in the seventh century of the common era, when a lost queen is apparently identified by a necklace, one of the witnesses pooh-poos the evidence, arguing that the princesses that princesses have so many jewels that it is hard not to find a coincidence of ornaments. Namely, this all these princesses. Why is this one necklace proof that she's somebody? Yet, to some extent, the idea of coincidence itself flies in the face of down-to-earth reasoning and can be challenged. These scattered passages demonstrate that the audiences for these texts were just as capable as we are of seeing the logical flaws in the use of a ring as a proof text, but still they go on using it. And even in the texts that point out its inadequacy, it functions as a proof. This is because it represents an anti-scientific, anti-logical argument that is often essential to the narrative. And so the convention generally prevails. The ring rings true. Moreover, these coincidences point us toward another sort of coincidence, the coincidence of the masquerading self with the undisguised self, of the clever wife with the make-believe prostitute. And this high wire act, one self flying through the masquerade to catch the outstretched hands of some other self, must be performed without any net but the narrative chain mail made up of rings. Rings of memory and forgetfulness are closely related to rings that bestow invisibility, perhaps on the principle of out of sight, out of mind, or out of mind, out of sight in this case. Or to put it differently, the ring may prove the physical identity of the wearer, proving that if she has the ring, she is who she says he is, or conceal it from the wearer himself when he loses it and it makes him forget who he is, or conceal it from others when it makes him invisible. Memory, forgetfulness, invisibility, marriage, love, identity. How can the ring come to symbolize them all? Indeed, it symbolizes much more. Robert Benchley, in his opera synopses, satirized the multivalence of the Wagnerian ring. Benchley's heroine seeks quite, the magic zither which confers upon its owner the power to go to sleep while apparently carrying on a conversation. A wonderful skill and an invisible cap, which enables her to talk to people without understanding a word they say. For a dollar and a half extra, he throws in a magic ring which renders its wearer insensible. The many powers of Benchley's ring and its accessories include, as usual, unconsciousness, but also the power to confound and confuse both vision and words. One early German text, perhaps ninth century, seems to me to be a self-parody that outdoes even Benchley. In it, Brunhilde sends to her brother, who happens to be Attila the Hun, but that's another story, she sends her brother a ring twined round with wolf's hair as a kind of signal, which he does not understand, nor do the scholars of the text. A ring that sends a signal that no one understands. How postmodern can you get? Let me conclude with a real-life example of a well-known contemporary variant on the theme of the ring found in the fish, the story of the message in a bottle cast out to sea and washed back to shore after many years, a theme that the New Yorker magazine in particular made a, a, a convention in its cartoons, a recognizable convention. On December 27th, 1984, a seven-year-old boy named Roger threw a Pepsi bottle into the Gulf of Mexico in Clearwater near St. Petersburg, Florida. The bottle was sealed with electrical tape and there was a message in it. To whoever finds this letter, please write me a letter and let me know, Roger J. Clay, 890 Linwood Avenue, Fairfield, Ohio 45014. A Florida man named Don Smith found the bottle in Tampa Bay on July 4, 2003, 20 years later. He went onto to the Internet and discovered that Roger had been killed in a motorcycle accident on July 10, 1998, when he was 21. Smith contacted Roger's parents. Roger's father said it was like he was trying to remind us he was still with us. His mother said, he's still playing tricks on me. Smith said he had told Roger's mother, what I can tell from this is that Roger's letting you know that hey, I'm okay, and guess what? I can still find you. The message inside the bottle is banal. Let me know if you find this. But the message of the bottle is far from banal. It is interpreted as a voice from the other side of the barrier of death a reassurance that nothing is ever lost, not the boy, not his mother. The bottle proved nothing. The story proved everything. The people who experienced the event knew how the myth should go. Thank you.